0: I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not written with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. A long, long time ago, when I was in credential school, uh, people were starting to apply for jobs, People weren't done with their, the program yet, but they were gonna be done soon that fall. So different people in the class were applying for positions. And a friend of mine really wanted to get a job in his hometown. He was from Arbuckle. <laughs> and jobs don't open up very much in Arbuckle. So he was just thinking, I really wanna get a job right around where I live. That's where I grew up. So he was looking for a job with Pierce Joint Unified. And what do you know, a job at the high school opened up, and that didn't happen very often. He was a total long shot. There were tons of applicants. And my friend was thinking, I'd really like to have that job. This is why I did all this work in college. That's why I went through this program. But we knew that that he was a long shot. But there was one factor that was in play, and it would make him have a way better chance of getting that job. One of our professors was the superintendent of Pierce Joint Unified. He was teaching the classes, some of the classes that we were in, and he was over the whole district, the the superintendents. And my friend thought, if I could get a letter of recommendation from him, that would be gold, a good letter, a solid letter, just a letter saying that I'm a good candidate for this job. What a difference that would make. So he requested the letter from the superintendent, from our our professor and just hoped and waited. And I was there the day when Dr. Lutz handed that envelope to my friend after class. And we went out into the parking lot and we were both, I was looking over his shoulder, what's the letter say? What's the letter of recommendation? What is he saying about you? And we saw something to this effect. This candidate is in the top 5% of teacher's that I have ever seen come through the program in 20 years. I was like, wow, that's the first sentence. I've never heard, do I need to tell you that my friend got the job? <laughs> that, and he got the job because of who wrote that letter of reference, of commendation, of recommendation for him. A good reference from the right person is extremely powerful, isn't it? What if you were hiring and your best friend, a close friend, or even one of your mentors applied for that position? Somebody that you know, somebody that that you trust, somebody that you've seen in action, somebody that you know very well. You've seen them in hard times, you've seen them pour out their life to you. And now you're hiring and they come, are you gonna say, can I have your letter of reference? I hope you have a letter of commendation, I hope you have some good references, and then I will consider you for this job. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that silly? Why would you ask for a letter of reference for somebody that you know so well, for somebody that's so close to you? You've been the beneficiary, and put this in the context of godliness, of their life giving to the kingdom of God out of the business world, or the corporate world, or the district world, and saying, I know who they are. They're close to me. They've given to me. I've seen their character. I've known of their faithfulness. So for me to ask for a letter of reference would be pretty ridiculous. Isn't that what these first three verses are about of the chapter? Some in the church at Corinth had entertained a lot of false assumptions and false accusations against Paul. It's true. Most people are are really quick to judge even when they don't know the situation. Isn't that true? We're getting more and more more like that as a society. I think I know what's going on even when we don't have that much information. We're getting more and more that way. So that's not rare. Quick to judge. False assumptions, accusations. But there's something really odd about the situation described for here in this book. They knew Paul. They knew him well. He was their pastor, their mentor, their friend. He had served them faithfully for years. He had corrected them when they were in error, and that's not an easy thing to do. He had worked two jobs while he was in Corinth because they were too immature to realize that pastors also need to make a living. So he worked making tents so that he would have the time to study and teach them the word of God during that time. He made a lot of sacrifices for them. He gave them the pure gospel. Not the watered-down gospel, the everlasting gospel, as it is called in the book of Revelation. He taught them the word daily in the school of Tyrannus. For a year and a half he was there, at least a year and a half he was there doing that. And now, isn't this more than just accusations or, or assumptions? This is actually betrayal, isn't it? Because they know Paul, and they're stabbing him in the back. So so, so Paul, I should say, gets sarcastic and ask them, do I need a letter of recommendation for you to, to believe in me? Do I need to get you to write a letter of commendation or recommendation for me? It's ridiculous. You know me. You've seen my life. You know how I've treated you. You know what a huge part of your life you have been. Beware, lest the current church be like the Corinthian church in this manner. What were they doing? They were coddling the charlatans... And they were accusing the faithful. And it's true. Many are quick to side with the most recent whisperer. Instead of the one who has openly declared the truth for years and years. Smearing has been going on for centuries. And that's what was happening right here in the church at Corinth. Paul had some bad reviews. But those who knew him knew better lies spread prolifically exaggerations like wildfire the truth isn't as juicy to some but it's still the truth so now Paul submits this idea which is extremely powerful look at what he says in the scriptures you are living proof of what I have poured into the kingdom of God that's pretty powerful he turns it on them and says Look at your life and all the good that God has done, your salvation and your sanctification. You are living proof that I have poured my life into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Now, in this place right here, I am living proof that you have poured your life into the kingdom of God. You are living proof that I've poured my life into it. And some of you can say that chair to chair across the aisle, isn't that true? What else do you need? Paul had years and years invested, a lot of faithfulness, a lot of teaching, a lot of love. But now the Corinthian church said, we have this one thing against you. You didn't come to visit us. So it's like they're literally like 99% that this guy is really a minister for the Lord, but there's that one sticking point. Yeah, I I just don't like that about you. Have we become such customers of the ministry that we would do such the the same thing? Now, it's easy to stand back and say, oh, Who would criticize the Apostle Paul? Biblically, look at how many people came after him in the ministry. Centuries later, we look and say, like, what a solid guy, what a fervent guy, what a faithful guy for the kingdom of God. But it wasn't like that when he was walking on this earth. There were a lot of accusations, there was a lot of trouble. And here is Paul, like, pointing out the ridiculous nature of this. Among ourselves, let's remember the work that God has done in us. And not take that lightly. You know why that work has occurred? Because he has used his spirit and he has used his people. We are vehicles. We are instruments of the Lord in each other's lives. I know many of us are individualists. We like that mode quite a bit. But biblically speaking, you are the product of somebody else's fervent service in the kingdom of God. Now, We're going to get to all glory to God and only because of God. But you see what Paul is saying to them? We are living epistles. Now, you can take this analogy too far and say, well, epistles are perfect because they're in the Bible. There's no error in them, and I need a lot of editing. I'm not like a perfect epistle. People do that with a Bible. They're taking the analogy too far. The idea is that you and I, more and more, are to represent Christ. Our lives are to speak The truth of Jesus to people, are they not? You've heard it said before, I didn't get a good read on him. What does that mean? Well, what's coming from their life? I'm not really sure what's there. What's the read on me? What's the read on you? Is it of Jesus? It's not saying that we're without error. It's not saying that we're without correction. But is the overall course of our lives and what's beaming from us a lot of self, or is it a lot of the Spirit? We are living letters, living epistles. Let's be accurate ones. Let's be ones that really shine by the Spirit of God, the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says about where this change takes place. Did you notice that? Is it on a stone? Is it on a piece of paper with some ink? No, it's in the heart, isn't it? See, the heart's the issue. The heart's the problem. The the heart's It's the seat of your desires. Are you listening to me? When the Bible says heart, it doesn't mean that muscle that pumps blood throughout your body. It means the center of your desires. This is a heart change. When we want to illustrate that something's not going to change, don't we sometimes say it's set in stone? Don't sometimes say it's not written in stone, but we, we try to say, well, this isn't Totally sure. But if we say something set in stone, we're trying to say, it's going to last, aren't we? Really, shouldn't we say, it's set in the heart? Because stone can break. Didn't the tablets of stone break when Moses threw them down to the ground? Even etching in stone can wear away. But a work of the heart is eternal. So we should say, it's set in the heart, not it's set in stone not in some sort of warm and fuzzy way, but God has given me a new heart. He's changed and is changing my desires. The whole way I think, everything that I want, he's putting me on a completely different course. That's in the middle of all of this that we'll learn about the new covenant today. Not set in stone, but set in the hearts and not written with ink because don't letters get ruined? They can get torn up. You can scratch the ink out. Right, you can blot it out but a work in the heart what's it it's not written by ink and it's not etched in a way like you would etch into stone it's written by the holy spirit isn't that what the word said your heart etched with the truth by the holy spirit of god that is the eternal work that nobody can raise a decent argument against god has changed you from the inside out has he done that He's given you new life, new heart, new desires, literally a new creation. You hear a lot today about your story. What's your story? You know, get your story out there. And you notice, it's usually really me focused. It's focused on the person. So the Bible is saying you do have a story. You, you do have something that you're broadcasting, illustrating, shining to this world. But your story is not about you. That's the difference, isn't it? Your story is about Jesus. Your story is about being a living epistle of him. When people read, when they open up that envelope, what's the first sentence they read from your life? Is it about you? When they get into the second or the third paragraph, what's your life saying? What's my life saying? Are we the living letters of the love of God, written by the Spirit of God, that we read of, Here, there is no higher calling than the calling of being a Christian. A follower of Jesus Christ. Even a little Christ, as it is put. Not that we're deity, but that we're following after. We are mimicking Jesus. Is being a brother, or a sister, or a mother, or a father, or a friend, or a disciple maker, is that above being a Christian? Nothing is above being a Christian. He makes us godly fathers and mothers and good friends. It's above your gifting. I see people so often, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm an evangelist, I'm a missionary, I'm a prophet. Nothing is above being a follower of Jesus Christ. Beaming forth with his grace by his spirit to others. The only way that I can be a good anything, that you can be a good anything, is if Christ is first. The gift isn't greater than the initial grace. We learned of this months and months ago that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that workmanship is his poema, his poem. We're illustrated. Here it's saying we're letters. The Bible is reiterating this powerful truth that you have a scent. Do you smell like Jesus? You say something with your life. Is it an epistle like what you read here, full of knowledge and grace? Point number one was be a living epistle. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Point number two, have confidence in God for discipleship. So we learn that we want to be living epistles, that we are living epistles, that our lives are saying something. And then number two, we learn that we are to have confidence in God for discipleship. Paul says here, I know that I've been called as a minister, and minister means servant. I know that God has called me to invest in your life. I know that God has called me to partake in that spirit work inside of you on your heart. Some would say, What nerve, how arrogant that anyone can say that they know that they're serving by the spirit into the lives of others. But look, Paul clarifies. He does say that he's sufficient and capable and called, but he says that his confidence is not in himself. Do you see that? It's confidence in God. He is sufficient only because God has made him sufficient for the service. He expresses this this confidence, this trust. But look, it's not in himself. That trust is in God for the work that he will do. A person's confidence in God is, can be misconstrued for self-confidence. When a person knows that God desires to work and they know what God has called them to do, others may look on and say, look at them, they're so self-confident. Well, there is such a thing as self-confidence, which isn't good. But that can be misconstrued. What if the confidence is in God, like Paul is describing here? I know the work that God is doing. And I know what God has called me to do. I know what he's told me to do as far as participating in this work. Some might look on and say, oh, she thinks she's really important or he thinks he's really worth listening to. No, they know that God is really important and they know that God's word is worth listening to and they're proclaiming the word of God. Such a person knows that God has called them to minister. Some would like to have an apologetic it that way. Yeah, an apologetic minister. Not me. I don't see that in the scriptures. Some would like the sheepish servant, the lack of clarity, a little bit of false humility. Not me. I don't see that in the scriptures. I see ministers that are confident in Christ to deliver the truth and love to people and say, no, God is doing a work and I'm a part of it, And I don't have any apologies for you about that. It doesn't mean that I'm far from perfect, but I am being used by God. You are being used by God. And the confidence is not in self. It's in the Lord because you know who he is. Paul is not saying he believes in himself. He's saying he believes in God's work through himself. Paul is also not saying that he believes in the Corinthians. Is he saying that? (laughs) I don't believe in the Corinthians. I don't believe in myself. I don't believe in you guys. (laughs) When you hear such things as people saying to each other, I believe in you. Beware. That's errant. We believe in what God is doing in each other and what God desires to do and what he will do that he's going to finish that work. But sometimes there's a little bit of flattery going on there. You butter somebody up and say, oh, I believe in you. I don't. I don't believe in you and I don't believe in me. But I know who Jesus is. I have confidence in him. And I know that he wants to use us in each other's lives. That's the confidence. Have confidence in God for discipleship. We don't have to be apologetic. We don't have to be sheepish. We don't have to pretend like, oh, we, we, we don't know what we're doing. We do know what we're doing. It's clearly spelled out for us in the word of God. There's a lot of clarity there. Let's have confidence in the work of the Lord. Paul's literally saying, I'm the man for the job. Isn't he? But not because I'm the man. People say, oh, you think you're the man. No, the Lord is the power. And look at the results of your life. He's turning it back to this Corinthian church saying, yes, you guys are unruly, but there's a lot of wonderful things that God has done in you. And that's because you heard the word. That's because... I preach the word to you, along with my co-laborers, Titus, and Timothy, and Silas. Again, let's read verse 6, so we can move on to point number 3. Who has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. minister the new covenant. What was Paul ministering? What was the content of his service? What was the message that he was proclaiming along with his comrades in the faith? What does it say here? He was proclaiming the new covenant, wasn't he? A covenant is an agreement, even a contract between two parties, where one is Superior and the other is inferior. It's not an agreement between rivals or between equals. A covenant, and in this context, you can see how it fits so well. This covenant is between God and man. So he speaks of the new covenant and says, We are ministers of this new covenant. We proclaim it. We desire to live it. This covenant would be impossible for us to give a thorough study of the whole old covenant, new covenant in the word of God, but let's get a few things straight about the new covenant and the old covenant. This is point number three, minister the new covenant, which means serve it up, which means let it flow through your life, which means speak the new covenant. (laughs) But although we can't learn all that the word says about it, and we probably never could learn it in weeks and weeks, but let's get a few things straight that are of vital importance. And if you want to A, B, C, D, E these, since we're numbering our, our points, let's do it that way for those of you that are organized. The new covenant, A, the new covenant was ushered in by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the upper room, Lord's Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right? Do this as, so Jesus was saying, this represents me giving my life for you. So Jesus laying down his life ushered in the new covenant. Communion through the cross. You and I being near to God because Jesus willingly laid down his life. That's the beginning of the new covenant. And now, as Jesus gave his life, that holy of holies in the temple is open to us. The veil was rent at the death of Jesus, and we can go right in the new covenant. B, the new covenant includes the coming of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. The church was birthed. And the new covenant is the Holy Spirit in us. In this passage, did you not see it? The new covenant is the Spirit writing on our hearts. The new covenant isn't laws on tablets any longer, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, the Holy Spirit now has a different relationship with us than he had with the Old Testament saints. Now the Spirit tabernacles in us, lives in us, because we have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the new covenant. That you and I don't see the Spirit afar off, but he is right in us. And why do we have the Spirit? So that we can be witnesses. He empowers us to be witnesses for the glory of God. He produces fruit in us. The fruit of the Spirit. Very famous, right? The Spirit in us is the new covenant. Accomplishing something supernatural. Today, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you're not living for yourself, but you're living for the Lord, He's worthy of your life because He gave His life on the cross for your sins. You've seen this change in you. Maybe it's been slow. Maybe it's been pretty quick. But it's been a supernatural work. It's a work that could have never happened in your own strength. It's the Spirit doing a work in you. That is the new covenant, the Spirit writing on your heart, working in your life, refining you, and making you more like Jesus. C, the new covenant replaced the old covenant. If you want, probably the best study on this would be the book of Hebrews. Study that, that book. We have a lot of teachings on it. There's a lot of great ones out there, but it made the old covenant obsolete. It says in Hebrews 8, 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. D, the old covenant was never a way to be saved. I hear people say sometimes, well, there was two two ways to be saved. There was the Old Testament way, and now there's the New Testament way. That's not true. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace through faith by their faith in Jesus, either looking forward to the cross or now looking back to the cross. So the old covenant was never meant to be a way to be saved. But look at the old covenant. Look what it says about it here. In verse six, it says, but the letter kills. Do you see that? What does it say at the beginning of verse seven? What does it call the old covenant? The ministry of death. How about that ministry? Somebody says to you, so what ministry are you a part of? I'm a part of the ministry of death. It's really exciting. The Lord's been doing great things in the ministry of death lately. We see a lot going on. People are dying right and left without hope. The ministry of death. That's what the old covenant is called. This last Thursday night, we were sharing about gifts and calling. And that's not one of those gifts that you hear people say, what's your ministry? I have the ministry of death. Well, this looks like it's terrible because really... This Old Covenant, it says right here, it kills. It it brings death. That doesn't sound very encouraging. That's because it's trying to be good to get to God. And that's an improper use of the Old Covenant. You'd have a better chance of long jumping the Grand Canyon, rim to rim, than you would being able to be good good enough for God to receive you. And I'm not trying to personally insult you. I'm telling you the truth about all of us. So the old covenant, it brings death. But E, I will stop at E, the old covenant is not evil. It's not wrong. As we learn in the coming verses, the old covenant includes the law. And the law is not bad. In fact, the scriptures say that the law of the Lord is perfect. So the old covenant brings death because we can't keep it because we don't have the power to do all the things that are listed there. We can't muster up, oh man, I'm going to keep, keep, keep these rules. So it brings death because the wages of sin is death. We cannot attain righteousness through the old covenant. So learning about this new covenant, back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, back to the Holy Spirit living in us and empowering us, giving us new hearts and new desires. I ask you, according to point number three, are you ministering the new covenant the same way that Paul was, the same way that Timothy was? Is that the message of your life? Is that how you're living your life? In the light of this wonderful new covenant that Christ has established? Is the Holy Spirit powering your life? Is he writing upon your heart? Or is Is it just a bunch of do's and don'ts that you dread? Which camp are you in? I know what it's like to live in both. To look at the law, to admit that it's good, see that there's a lot of don'ts, that there's a lot of do's, and then say, man, I've tried this before and I know I can't do it. But then there's the new covenant which gives you by faith the spirit of God in your heart. They're not written on tablets anymore, but God himself doing a work right inside of you. Listen to this, changing your desires. We're so mixed up when we think that, that God's going to give us all of our desires. God changes our desires to line it with, with what is good. And then he empowers us to do that through his spirit. It's amazing when God changes like what you want. He's changing your heart. Laws can change the outside, the do's and the don'ts. And I'm not saying to be a lawbreaker. That's not what this message is about. But let's admit it. Unless we have a heart change penned by the Holy Spirit, our old desires, and there are tons of sinful desires, will just hold on because we're not ministering the new covenant and we're not living in the new covenant. And Jesus said, this cup, the new covenant of my blood. I shed this blood for you so that you could stop striving and start living in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Live to please your Savior. If you read this in the context of the book of Romans, it would be live according to the law of the spirit of life, not according to the law of sin and death. Those are the either one you can live in. And and the law of sin and death can't save. But the law of the spirit of life will save you and establish you. Oh, what a love Jesus has for us that he would give his life to open up this covenant. The new covenant had been promised long before, but now this covenant has come to fruition. Its coming had been prophesied, but now the new covenant has come to pass. It was through this new covenant that the Corinthians were saved, and it was through this new covenant that they were being sanctified, that they were being established, set apart for God. The same is true for you you today. As a Christian, the only way you can be saved is is through the new covenant. That's how you were established. I bring up these prophecies, and even though the new covenant has come to fruition, I, I really get excited to read of them because the Lord is speaking forward to how he's going to work in people's lives and what he's going to do and how it's going to be different and how he's going to change desires. I want you to listen to some of these prophecies about the coming new covenant, which we're living in right now. One is from Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they, they shall all know me. Speaking of the priesthood, isn't that speaking of that? Like, No, they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a new covenant. I love reading those prophecies. Here's another one from Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You see, is the Lord saying to us, I'll just do whatever you want? No, he's saying, I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to give you new desires. Maybe you've heard about this covenant. Maybe you've heard about this grace, but you really haven't received it. You've heard that there is a way of living that is spirit-powered, but you haven't experienced it. You've heard about a faith that saves, and you have some faith, but not the saving faith, the faith that surrenders. The Lord told us this was coming, and then he came and laid down his life so that you and I could walk in newness of life minister the new covenant don't go back into the old use the law for its purpose don't trash it because it is good but use it in the way that it should be used to to show us our sin so that we run to the lord in repentance although there's a lot of aspects to the new covenant it's not complicated jesus gave his life for you he wants to fill you with the spirit but you've got to surrender. You've got to turn from your sin and make him your Lord. If you do that, he'll save you, and you can be a minister of the new covenant and a participant of the new covenant. I rarely say this, but let's end with point number four, because people, you know why I, I don't do that very often? Most preachers say, and finally, and in conclusion, because everybody closes their Bibles and is like, it's like, ooh, he's done. <laughs> this will be one of those rare occasions. Us and me and my fellow elders, we call it driving the Jeep off the cliff. You just teach, teach, eat, boom, you're done. I didn't have time to wind down, good. You're just ready. Teaching terminology. The fourth point is going to be anticipate the glory of heaven. Look for that in these verses as we read verse seven through 11. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. We read about God giving the law in the Old Testament, and it is powerful. I was one of those kids, when I read about Moses in my Bible, I was like, man, I'd like to see that. Look at that the pillar of fire, the the pillar of smoke, Mount Sinai, the earthquakes, the lightning. I I wanted the power, the glory. I was like, wow, if you could see that, how could you be worshiping a golden calf after you've seen God part the Red Sea? Like, what's wrong with these people? But the power that was there, even in the delivery of the old covenants, Moses, he's referring to Exodus 34, had been in the presence of God. And when he came, he didn't realize that his face was beaming because he had been in God's presence. And the the people saw, look at Moses' face. It just has this glory streaming from it because Moses had been in the presence of God. But it was diminishing because he, he had to leave the presence of God and come to the people. And Paul is saying, if the old covenant delivered that much glory, think about the new covenant. That's the ministry of death. That's the message of condemnation because you can't keep the law. So you can't be saved by the law. And it was glorious. It was powerful. Now think about the glory of the new covenant. That makes me anticipate heaven. I'll back up a little bit and read to you from Exodus nineteen sixteen, since. You might need to hear about the power of the delivery of the old covenant. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Lightning. I love lightning. Some struck just a couple weeks ago, just right by my house in Arthur's field. And it was just boom, powerful. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. That's the glory. That's the power that Paul is referring to here. The glory that was in the old covenant. That's a lot of power. The presence of God radiating from Moses what will it be like when we're in God's presence all the time? That's glory beyond our understanding. That's splendor beyond what we can even think of. That's brightness beyond what our brains can fathom. Moses carrying tablets etched upon New Covenant. Jesus holding our hearts Written on by the Spirit. How much more glorious. We live in the new covenant now, and we have glimpses of this glory. 1 Corinthians 13 12. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is saying, We get glimpses of the glory of God right now. I know God, but I don't know him the way I'm going to know him when I see him face to face. I'm looking through a mirror. I'm looking through a glass that's not rendering a perfect resemblance. But there will come a day face to face, and it will make the glory of Sinai look like nothing. The word is calling to you and me to lift up our heads and anticipate the glory of heaven. Right now, we have a taste of what is to come. And I want to taste every bit of that glory that I possibly can. Fanny Crosby, one of my favorite songwriters, wrote, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Like, I'm walking with Jesus, and that's just a taste of the glory that I'm going to live in for the rest of my days. He's got these unruly believers that he's addressing. And you might think, oh, heaven's too lofty for them to think about. <laughs> they're so busy picking each other apart and arguing about Paul and Apollos and, and Peter, and they're so busy bickering. They, why even teach them about heaven? They, they, they can't even get up there. You know, they needed to set their eyes on the eternal, didn't they? If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Isn't that what the word says? Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on this earth. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not here. Your life is not here. Your life is in glory. Anticipate the glory of heaven. Lift up your head from this dark world and look forward to the light of heaven. This world is getting more and more perverse, more and more dark, more and more weird. I want the light of God. We don't have to be drawn into the darkness of this world. In fact, walking in the Spirit is the total opposite direction. We receive more and more light, more and more glory. Yes, and we live in a world that's getting more and more dark. More in it, but not of it. This new covenant... Minister it. Anticipate the glory of God. As we sing, you're going to ask God for a heart change. I need one of those. You need one of those. I need more of the Spirit riding on my heart. I can't ever say like, oh, I've had enough guiding of the Spirit. I've had enough fruit of the Spirit. I'd have enough empowering of the Spirit. No, I want to walk in the Spirit, and I want Him to be writing and writing and writing, yes, my salvation, but every bit of his good truth upon my heart and upon yours. Nicole and Gary and Christian are going to come up, and these are the words of the psalmist, where he says, create in me a clean heart. He's like, God, just give me that brand new heart. Renew me. If you haven't believed in Jesus, you need a brand new heart. That comes by faith in him. Confess him as Lord today. If you have believed in Jesus, ask him to restore to you the joy of his salvation. Say, I I know who you are, Lord. I I need the joy, once again, of the salvation that you provided for me.